8. Ultra. Within days, I signed up for another marathon and started a cycle of planning events, with each marathon being about four to six months apart. This schedule allowed me to always have a target on the calendar that I would be preparing for to remain in shape, to be ready mentally, and to be physically ready for the races, and most importantly, to remain sober. This also allowed me to tell people about my plans at the gym and bask in my pride of accomplishment. I was eager to let people know that I had quit drinking and found this new, untapped motivation and ability. This need for attention and pride didn't seem negative to me because I felt like I could impact people positively through stories of effort instead of stories of partying or through cynical humor. I didn't share much on Facebook, but I was pleased when someone shared something about me or perhaps snapped a picture of me after a race. The number of likes on one of those posts did boost my mind or alternatively flatten my mood based on the lack of likes. I wanted approval just as I always had ever since childhood from my friends, from my parents, from my peers. I wanted to know that I was good and I sought validation. Any armchair psychologists out there, feel free to email me with advice. By the time I had done three more marathons, I began to notice a pattern of anticipation leading up to the event. And then afterwards, a kind of bottoming out happened. The race prep held excitement and wonder, and the race itself felt like a purging of pent-up time and energy. But then the day after a race, perhaps partially from soreness or from the depletion of nutrients, an ennui toward life took hold of me. A dysphoria swung back after the euphoria of the race, and I finally realized that this low feeling prompted me to start searching for the next race to run so that I could get back to where I wanted to be. In essence, the races were like being drunk. The highs and the lows still followed my life like a vice, whether I was in shape or fat or sober or drunk. The restlessness and anxiety could re-enter the stage at any time, and the worst days, those black dog days, to quote Winston Churchill, of dysfunction and hopelessness could arrive without so much as a stubbed toe to blame. I considered how I had started taking medications like Lexapro and Wellbutrin so long ago, going to the doctor to get something to address my malady, and yet the symptoms still returned. Tweaking dosages could help, but then I had been taking those pills for years. Depression is a disease, I was assured. Depression happens due to an imbalance of chemistry in the brain. In the brain. But wait, I felt like I'd heard this before in the form of bodily humors. Maybe Lexapro helped to reduce my black bile and make me more sanguine. It's funny how the old seemed new again and the new was old. Perhaps the Stoics were correct after all that time is a flat circle. I started to doubt the efficacy of pharmaceuticals for this infinite loop of highs and lows. There was something else at work. Those difficult days of moodiness I dealt with in one of two ways. One way was acceptance and realizing that life imposed hard days for no reason and that I should stop whining and deal with it like a grown-up. The other way involved acting more like a baby. In the latter experience, little things set me off, not with anger toward others, but negatively toward myself, and no amount of cognitive behavioral therapy or positive self-doc 
could reorient my mind on those days. I wanted to complain. I wanted to find fault. In fact, the easiest way for me to tell that I was in a bad state would be to monitor my thoughts about my wife, my neighbors, immigrants, racial issues, politics, and various religions and worldviews. When I was in a fall mood, some scapegoat outside of my tribe of life or of my tribe of one person would receive my ire for no reason other than I was upset with myself in some way. Rather than take this ride to the bottom again, I signed up for more races. A marathon no longer thrilled me, so I bumped up to a 50K race, and that was enough to put the carrot out further on the stick. A book by ultramarathoner Dean Carnassus had a great quote that led me to believe I needed to go farther, to run farther and longer, that I wasn't yet in the zone of knowledge in regard to body pain and mental commitment. The quote from one of his books was this, if you want to run, run a mile. If you want to experience a different life, run a marathon. If you want to talk to God, run an ultra. So those first two I had already confirmed. Running a mile was running a mile. Changing my life was by running a marathon. So naturally, I wanted to know the third part and talk to God. This was reminiscent of my younger self wanting to experience love, poverty, and war because that's what O. Henry said a person needed to experience a full life. I wanted experiences. I had lived in Europe. I'd worked on farms. I'd been in the army. I worked at a homeless shelter. I skydived. I'd tried drugs, pursued sex, experienced the highs and lows of sports, fallen in love, had my heart broke, maybe broke a heart, tried exotic foods. I'd gone camping, canoeing, fishing, hunting, but I hadn't done an ultramarathon or a triathlon yet. The fat and happy life had not provided any deep insight to me, even as I settled into my comfortable bed and read books at night. I still needed to find a struggle, one of my own choosing. The comfort of modernity was driving me to seek hardships, like an ultramarathon, because my membership in this privileged class had satisfied all wants and desires. So I signed up for the 50K race and ran it. It wasn't enough mileage. So I signed up for a 50-mile race and a full Ironman for the coming summer. So I started training all winter in the snow, like Rocky Four, but without the abs of a steroided-up Sylvester Stallone. I began swimming at the lap pool, having no idea how to swim a proper freestyle sto stroke. I received the kindest insult I've ever received from a veteran swimmer who before giving me some critical tips, said, you look like a person who came to the sport of swimming later in life. He was right. Forcing myself to learn swimming came with the click of a mouse button when I signed up for the Ironman without really having any hope of completing a 2.4 mile swim. Paying the fee for a race somehow has the power to steal my determination. Though I came to swimming late in life, I was still hell-bent on developing enough stamina in the water to finish the race. And surely, surely the Ironman would cure me. This was the thing. 
This was the satisfaction. And if it did not cure me, there were 100-mile races out there waiting in the hinterlands of Death Valley and Leadville, Colorado, and all over the country. Training in snow still seems somewhat insane to me, since I recall hobbling along snowmobile trails and waving at the riders. Surely they thought I was nuts. But I was sober and still pouring my family into heart, coaching, pouring my heart into family, coaching, training, and my job. Perhaps it was insane, but it was working except for one thing. This one thing was this. I had found a new path to isolation. Again, like every hobby before, the fitness craze aligned perfectly to a solitary person like me. Yes, I could have joined running groups or CrossFit organizations, but I liked the quiet and the silence of the long runs. Even at the gym, I wore headphones. Everyone at the gym seemed to be working out together, but alone. Only if we saw a familiar face would we pause the music for a minute and chat before returning to isolation in the earbuds. I always had myself to talk to anyway. Learning to swim and training for endurance offered plenty to ponder. Someone asked me once what I thought about while running for hours, and I said, well, the same things I think about in bed at night staring at the ceiling. Exercise didn't remove the brooding mind from me. No, I carried my brain with me. But as the body exhausted itself, the mind became less prone to brooding. In fact, after several hours of running, I found doing even basic math problems in my head difficult because I had a hard time calculating my pace and mileage despite it being really simple math. Running seemed to pull the blood out of, out of my brain and park it in my legs, which can be nice for someone with a tendency toward rumination. My workout schedule of preparing for the Ironman started nine months in advance. Most days required two workouts, yet I always wanted to pound miles. To pound miles was what I always said in my head. I wanted to pound the miles out. I wanted to run myself to exhaustion or wreck myself on the bike so that when I arrived home, I could collapse into the arms of a bowl of cinnamon toast crunch. Being wasted from exhaustion on a bike or on a run made me feel more alive. I recall a hot day when I set out for a 20-mile run, and I brought only a liter of water with me. The heat exceeded my expectations, and after three hours of running, I was not yet close to home. The last four miles felt like a desert, and I suffered greatly from my lack of foresight on water. Normally, I was careful about water, recalling military obsessions about carrying enough water recalling some anecdote about the Egyptian armies and the heat strokes that they experienced in the desert. The hour it took me to walk to the house seemed like a day. Now I was never in any real danger as I wasn't verging on death, but this was an experience that I learned a lesson from and I took a strange enjoyment from due to the test of my body. This wasn't like Jesus in the desert for 40 days. It was just me in the sun without water for a few hours. Yet, the devil could have bartered my soul for a cup of ice water that day. I also just hope the devil doesn't know about my love of breakfast cereal. Here's the odd thing that I started to notice. Suffering by useless tasks like marathons does test a body and mind. But the real tests in life are those things that are not glamorous or prideful, like 
doing the laundry and dishes, cleaning the bathroom floors, toilets, and mirrors for 40 years and raising children and dealing with people, that is the real test of endurance. Yet I don't feel the need to write about the last time I cleaned the bathroom, unless maybe I were to tell you about the clog of hair in the shower drain that looked like a dead squirrel when I yanked it out. No, the actual test of endurance is in the small daily things and the ups and downs of family and community life. Endurance sports appear virtuous because of the persistence and training that is required to finish them. But if looked at closer, they could be seen as personal pursuits performed in isolation for recognition from others. I don't want to discount all goals, but the wetsuits, the bikes, the running shoes, they all adorn the athlete like jewelry with a shine to make the pursuit appear glamorous and worthy of respect. But in the end, the accomplishment is itself a purchased product. These achievements allowed me to wear a persona of, of success, not very different from purchasing a luxury car, and basically to brag about my ability. The marketing won me over. I had paid quite a bit for those marathon t-shirts and medals. And I realized that I, I could inspect every single action I take to find similar motives and pick apart everything I do until there is nothing left but the dry bones of criticism. But as I spent that summer taking long solo bike rides and rushing to the pool for laps and running out the door for 10K training runs, I had to consider my rationale for this goal because at some point the need to test my physical endurance had started to unhitch from inspirational and slid towards selfishness. And luckily, my family gave encouragement, but if they had objected to the amount of time I spent alone in this pursuit, I'm certain that I wouldn't have stopped training because I wanted to be known as someone who had completed the Ironman because then I would be special or something like that.